You're listening to Women Making Waves. I'm Linda Ness. And I'm Susie Thorpe. This is the programme that highlights women's achievements. And we're going to introduce you to women who are making waves. I really worry about the problem of refugees and how they survive. I don't think you're you're ever prepared for coming to Calais. It's a very unique situation, so it's, it's quite different. So this is essentially a political crisis. And the reason why people here is because of politics. And I passed through here and I meant to stay for two weeks just to, to be useful, and two years later... <laughs> the refugee crisis in northern France has gone quiet at the moment. Large camps like the jungle were dismantled by the French authorities and President Macron has said France won't allow another refugee camp to form. This is an attempt to put refugees off from making their way to the area. Surely then the crisis is over. So we wondered why local agencies such as CAMCRAG, the Cambridge Convoy Refugee Action Group, were still in business and still visiting Calais regularly. So Cambridge 105 radio presenter Neil Whiteside and I joined a weekend convoy to find out what was going on. It became clear that there were a lot of women who'd gone to France to help the refugees and I was particularly interested in speaking to them. This is what I found. I think we're just at the start of the refugee crisis. There's millions of people on the move, displaced people within their own countries and that have fled their countries. We've got wars still raging all over the world. We've got famine. We've got climate change. We've got dictators. We've got torture. We've got discrimination. And while all those things are present in countries, we will have people fleeing them. And we should, as human beings, welcome them and try and appease the situation in any way that we can. That last voice you heard was Janie, one of the people who set up the Refugee Community Kitchen. The work of supporting the refugees takes place in a large warehouse in the outskirts of Calais. It sits in a row of other warehouses and looks no different to the rest. Large metal gates remain closed, opening only to allow cars, vans and lorries in and out. Inside the warehouse, there's the Refugee Community Kitchen, referred to as RCK, and a storage facility for the sorting and distribution of clothing, shoes and equipment. As you enter the warehouse, you see notice boards covered in useful information about the activities that go on in the warehouse and how the place works and general kind of graffiti and humour. Volunteers who'd arrived to work over the weekend were welcomed and asked to choose which area they wanted to work in. There were lots of people from Cambridge on this weekend because Camcrag had arranged their convoy. I followed the crowd who were going to sort out clothing and Helena told them what to do. Afterwards, I caught up with her and I asked her how long she'd been volunteering with the charity. I was here in 2016 and 17 for nine months and so I've come back for four months this time before I go to uni again. Because you were organising the people that were sorting out clothing on yes. their own? Yes, yes. Where about you from originally? I'm from Edinburgh, just outside of Edinburgh in Scotland, yes. So what brought you here? What made you come out here, Helena? Initially, there was our children's centre in Dunkirk um, that I was in contact with and I wanted to come out for the summer because I wanted to be a teacher and then yeah just so obviously in the summer there's lots of teachers that come to Cali and so I came to the warehouse instead to find out how to be useful. You're enjoying doing this presumably? Yeah I think it's the atmosphere and the 
the ethos of people just wanting to do things and be part of yeah doing as much as possible working really hard and you know I've just met some amazing people and the reward that you get from it selfishly is really amazing too. So and that is part of it, yeah. isn't it? So people do want to volunteer. Mm-hmm. That's something that they should feel. Really Definitely, mad. there's such a community feel, both with the guys and with all the volunteers that are around. And you know, we sit and eat lunch together every day, and like, yeah, just a really nice place to come and volunteer I think even if it's just for a day so at the end of this you'll be going back yes yes normal life and you're not looking forward to that um well when I left before it was quite difficult because I kind of left at the end of like there was like the eviction and lots of different things happening and so I found going back quite difficult so I'm hoping this time it will be different but yeah it is quite a thing that lots of people don't really want to go back to their commitments a lot of people come for a week and then end up staying for a year (laughs) right yeah well well, that was me I came for a month and stayed for yeah about a year are you always in the warehouse at the moment yeah well I'm just back so I've done kind of some training and stuff for like field training and legal training and stuff but in the last three months I was here I was like the warehouse manager kind of consistently and so I thought this is something I know and yeah can be helpful and it's going to be summer so there's going to be quite a lot of volunteers around so yeah I think I'm going to be mostly based in the warehouse. By this time the whole warehouse was a hive of activity. Loud music boomed through the speakers and people sorted out clothing and more people wandered in. Transit vans and cars came and left dropping off clothing and supplies. In the kitchen I interrupted someone who was hard at work. So you're working in the kitchen today what's your name? Uh, My name's Abigail. And have you been here for long? I've been here about a month now, so this is sort of my first time I went on holiday and I came back. So you're actually permanently at here, it's not just the weekend? No, I'm here for, I've been here for a month and I'll stay here till August. Where about have you come from in the UK? I'm from London. And what made you come out here? What happened? I came here for a week and then I extended it for two weeks and then I extended it for three weeks and then I just like quit my job and then came back. Really? So you yeah. actually had a job and you just stopped? I, I did. Working here. Yeah, I had a job and I quit everything and came back. Why? What, what made you do that? That's a big thing to do. I know, you know what, because it's just so big and they need people and when I like I got to the distribution my it pulled up my heartstrings and I saw how much people were in need and RCK runs such a good operation I had to get involved and I had to just like get involved 110% and that was the, the thing was it when you actually got out there yeah when you see men women children babies living in like the worst conditions but yet they're still smiling so happy when I first came it was like really cold waiting and lining up for food in the freezing cold desperate sitting outside in the freezing cold just waiting for like hot tea hot food it just and you this is Europe and you know this is like two and a half hours from my house so this is absolutely for me it just blows my mind every time and so I had to be here and I had to do something and what do you spend your day doing I work in the kitchen most days, so we prep food. So we start at 9 o'clock in the morning and we prep the food, which is going to go out later that evening. So we peel a lot of onions, a lot of garlic. <laughs> you spend a lot of time crying. Yeah, a lot of time crying. I'm not a very good onion peeler. So. <laughs> no, still terrible, yeah. <laughs> and so then after we, um, once the food is cooked, we send it out for distribution. I One, one distribution is at 3 o'clock, another one's at 5 and do you go out with that distribution? Yeah, yeah it, it, we, it alternates on days. So today I'll be going to um, Dunkirk again to distribute. We leave at 3.30 and we usually get back 
to um, the warehouse about 7.30. And you're not being paid to do this? No, no, we're not being paid, no. So what's your life like here? Is it quite hard? Um, well, we get, we, get, we get free accommodation and we get food. Um, the lunch here is absolutely amazing. If you come for the day, you have to try it. And so you kind of just get by, you know. It's like a community, so everyone cooks together at home in the evening. Everyone has dinner together, and so it kind of just works out really well. I don't know, like, I've, I've never had to budget so much in my life, but it works, you know. I'm, and do you have a plan how long you're going to stay here? I, I've given myself to August, because I, I don't really have a plan, no. Like, I'm just kind of living on, just going with one it. One month to the next. Literally, yeah, one month to the next and just enjoying it. The policy of not wanting another camp to form in northern France means that the French riot police are tasked with ensuring that no permanent routes are established. Everyone at the warehouse was very matter-of-fact about what they were dealing with. Ruth told me more about the situation, but first, I asked her why she'd come to Calais. I studied human rights at university, um, so it was always like something that I was really aware of. But because I was studying in Ireland, it's not as easy to get from Ireland to Calais as it is like to drive from the UK to Calais. It wasn't like I could come for just a weekend, so I had to kind of have like a, a long period of time that I would be able to come for. So when I finished studying, I worked for a few months to save some money that I'd be able to like support myself when I came here, and then I came out. So you're really kind of living the dream of what you studied, presumably, everything that you learned back there. You're now putting into practice. Um, I, I don't think you are, you're ever prepared for coming to Calais. It's a very unique situation, so it's it's quite different. In what way is it unique? Why why is it so different here? I think it's it's hard to imagine Calais and to like conceptualise what's actually happening here before you come here. The amount of people that we're supporting varies on a daily, weekly basis. It depends on the weather, it depends on all different circumstances, so it's the situation here is ever changing and you never can really know what to expect in the next in the next days. So it's not something you can really plan for. You can't think next week we're going to be cooking X amount of meals and this is going to happen. It's literally, you're on quicksand by the sound of it. Yeah, that's definitely it. I mean, even with um, distributing tents and sleeping bags, we never know when the police are going to do a clearance. So sometimes it can be multiple times for a week, then it can slow down, it can speed up. So we always kind of have to be on our toes and ready for ready for what's going to come, essentially. And we've been hearing about this all morning, we've been speaking to people, about the police clearing off people's belongings as soon as they're left on their own, I'm assuming, or do they take them off them as well? How does this work? Uh, for example, we have roughly five kind of main sites in Calais. So when a clearance happens, it's riot police, so they're called the CRS. They come in and they surround the sites where they make like almost a circle to block it off. So there's a lot of police, a lot of police vehicles. They block it off so no one else can come inside the circle essentially like volunteers and everyone else. And what they do is they take all the tents and whatever else is inside them. And most of the time they destroy them when they're, when they're doing it. So, like for example, last week we had more than four clearances, which meant that we had to go to four sites and redistribute tents and sleeping bags to everyone. And often they also have maybe extra items of clothing in their tents or their phones or their IDs, <clears throat> which also often get taken and destroyed. So the IDs are destroyed as well. Any yeah. passports or papers or Any photographs papers that they might photographs have or their mobile phones that they use to communicate with their families. Freya, the donations coordinator, has been in Cali for over nine months. She was clear that the situation in Cali was a political crisis more than a humanitarian one. So I came here as a student. So I needed to do a year abroad in a French-speaking country because I study French and politics. And I was thinking what can I do that is French speaking 
but will also link into politics. So this is essentially a political crisis. And the reason why people here is because of politics. You know, people aren't stuck in Calais because there was an earthquake, or people aren't stuck in Calais because, you know, there were there was a famine. That's that they're the reasons maybe why people left in the first place, but they're stuck in Calais because of border politics. So it's a very political situation. So I thought, I have a year, I need to spend my year abroad. I want to do something that I at least feel is useful or helpful to other people. As well as coordinating donations, Freya is on the hospital run team, which helps refugees who need medical treatment. The hospital run team is all about taking people from the main distribution sites down to the hospital. So it's a place called La Passe. It's open to everyone in France, whether or not you have papers, whether or not you're a French citizen, you can go along and get free health care. So it's a really, really vital service. And what do you do? Do you find people that need that service? Do they come to you? How does that work? So we've set up in the community quite well, so people know that we're going to be there at the same time every day. People see the bus, people see us, they say, hospital, hospital, doctor, doctor, even though I'm not a doctor myself, (laughs) or a driver for that matter. It doesn't matter because I'm a French speaker, so it's okay. (laughs) And that must really help, I'm assuming. Yeah, it really, really does help, because often one of the problems that we do face in hospital run is that people can get lost in the system. So if we take someone to the hospital for an appointment or for surgery, if they stay in the hospital, it's really, really important that we can find them again and make sure that they get back, you know, back with their friends because it is very daunting to live in a different country where you don't speak the language, mm-hmm. especially if you're a vulnerable person. So. Yes. No, I can imagine it must be very difficult. And also just getting across what's wrong with you, I think, some of the time if you haven't got the language. Yeah, so we have this, this um, problem in our team whereby communication can be quite difficult if you don't share a common language so we've picked up words in Tigrinya or in Arabic for medical problems, but also it does help people. People like to point. <laughs> so people will say, problem here, problem here, and point at their heads, and we're like, okay, you've got a headache, or problem here, and point at their legs. And it's just it's a way of communication whereby you maybe can't speak the same language, but you understand each other, and there is that level of trust there, and there has to be. Because, you know, we take people, we take minors, we take, you know, vulnerable people, vulnerable adults, and they leave their friends and they get in the bus with us and we have to take them and we stay with them all day, make sure they're okay, get them the medical care that they really, really need, and then take them back at the end of the day. And that trust even to get in the bus must be something as well, because I'd be scared. And and especially if I'm not feeling very good and maybe you're leaving your family or your friends and you're going off with strangers, that must be quite a step for people. It is quite a step for people. So it really does help that a lot of our team have been here for a very long time. Mm. So a lot of people know us from distributions or they know us from other places. So they know they can trust us. They know we'll bring them back. Their friends have probably been to the hospital with us. We've got music in the bus. You know, we do have a good time despite fact we're taking people to the hospital (laughs) you said you'd be there for me in times of trouble when i need you when i'm down to volunteer email us it's refugeecommunitykitchen at gmail.com you can look at our website we have refugeecommunitykitchen.com and also our social media pages we have a great facebook group we have a huge network of people who care about this spread the word this is a community effort to support people who need help
It's a really tough situation out here for people. Why don't people just say, OK, I'm going to claim political asylum in France because I'm fed up with this? Um, some people come here, they do want to claim asylum in France, and sometimes people are here for a few months and they give up trying to get to the UK and they will try to claim asylum here. But most of the time you have to, you have to remember that these people are trying to get to the UK for a specific reason. So, for example, I talked to a young, um, a young man from Afghanistan a few weeks ago and he was telling me that his brothers are in the UK. So he wants to be with his family. He, his whole life has already, already been destroyed in Afghanistan, his home, he's lost a lot of members of his family and now he finally wants to be with, with his brother. So that's why he wants to go to the UK and it's the same with a lot of people from Eritrea. They have family in the UK. So people are, are trying to go there for a specific reason. It's not that they just want to go to the UK. And also when they're here in France, they have a really negative perception of France and quite a bad view because they associate police violence with France and their, the terrible circumstances that they're living in with, with France as a whole, so they do want to go to the UK. A number of refugees have claimed <coughs> asylum in France. Do you ever hear about how that works out for them and what kind of life they have afterwards? Yeah, I mean, we have, since when the big jungle was here, a lot of people did claim asylum in France, and since then we've had people come here to the warehouse to volunteer that have gotten their papers, that are studying French, or that have started working um, working here in France. So it does work out. It just depends on the person if they want to be here or if they want to go somewhere else. That was Ruth talking about refugees who choose to stay in France. The women I spoke to ranged in ages, but many of them were young students. As a parent myself, I wondered how parents felt about them working with refugees in France. <laughs> They're really good about it. They're really, really supportive. They think that I'm doing a good thing, I think. But my mum is one of those mums who will tell everyone and she will hype it up. She'll be like, oh, you know, Freya, Freya, she's uh, working in a humanitarian crisis. You know, she'll tell everyone at the hairdressers and I'm just like, oh, mum, I just, you know... <laughs> Just drive people to the hospital. I said, it's all right, you know. <laughs> but no, that's just a normal mum. She's doing a yeah, job. She's, she's, she's multiple. She's telling everyone how great you are and embarrassing you at the same time, which is perfect. Yeah, she she really does like to embarrass me. You know, she thinks <laughs> me and my friends here are, you know, I don't know. She thinks we're running the UN essentially. <laughs> we're not. We're just a warehouse with yeah, twenty-year-olds in it. I don't think we're just a warehouse at all. I've only been here for the morning so far. I think saying just a warehouse is really undermining what you're saying. <laughs> great job here I mean we've seen people so enthusiastic here yeah and and mucking in and and doing horrible jobs and enjoying (laughs) it because they think they're doing something good and they are they are yeah everyone whether you come for a day you know a week a year the rest of your life (laughs) everyone is doing such such great work and we wouldn't we wouldn't be able to run without everyone that comes here and does work here so your other job is about contributions, uh, I'm, I'm hearing. What, what do you do with that? So, yeah, I'm the donations coordinator. So it's my job to, like, liaise with groups in the UK and to get donations to the warehouse. So from the warehouse, our primary jobs here are to do distributions of things like clothes, tents, sleeping bags, just to make sure that people, you know, have somewhere to sleep, have a way to keep warm, have a way to change their clothes. And clothes for the guys here, for the refugees here, is really, really important because it's a way of expression as well. And it's it's really important when you have maybe limited ways to express yourself in other ways. You know, you don't have papers. You know, you're having problems with the police. You're having problems with your food. You're having problems with where you live. 
the way that you look can be so important in being able to fit in and make friends and just to be able to feel like yourself in a place that doesn't help you feel like yourself. So it's really, really important for us to be able to get lots of donations in, to get lots of clothes, to get lots of sleeping bags so that when the police take them, we can give them back out again so that people don't stay cold overnight because it's not nice to live outside in the winter. Somebody was saying something interesting earlier on that I thought was quite amusing, actually, and she was saying that the teenagers are kind of going, I'm not putting that on, I'm not going to look cool. Yeah. <laughs> it's just youngsters being youngsters. It really I mean, is. just despite the fact that they're, I guess, homeless and in a foreign environment... People yeah. are just people at the end of the day, aren't they? They want something nice. It really, Yeah, it really, really is important. I always think, you know, there is that phrase, beggars can't be choosers, but I really don't think it applies here. One of our main jobs is to, to give people back their dignity that's mm-hmm. been taken away in this, this political crisis. And as a 21-year-old, I know that if if someone tried to make me wear a big, baggy coat that was six sizes too big and it was bright, red and you know just clashed with my with everything else that I was wearing you know I'd be like "Mm, you got anything else (laughs) because you know it's so important and loads of the guys are so fashionable it really does help to just bring up morale and bring up that dignity in life that people really really do deserve I mean I don't want to say that skinny jeans are a human right but (laughs) I'm gonna say it in touch with us directly at the warehouse you can email me at calaisdonations at gmail.com and just by emailing me I can tell you whatever you need to know about donations what kind of things to collect if you're in Cambridge how to get in touch with Cam Crag if you're outside of Cambridge I can tell you if there are groups closer to you that also come over We had lunch, and it was, as promised, delicious. After lunch, I spoke to Rosalie from Cambridge, who was there for the weekend with Cam Craig. So you've come across for this weekend? Yeah, just for the weekend. Mm-hmm. So today and tomorrow you've been working here. Mm-hmm. You've done it before? Yes, this is the fifth time I've been here. What on earth makes you come out here initially? What puts that idea into your head? I really worry about the problem of refugees and how they survive. Uh, especially when they've got this far and they've got their final stage that they want to make and it's the most difficult and I feel a lot of sympathy for them. Um, Many years ago we had a Chilean refugee in the 1970s as our lodger and he's lived in Britain ever since and had a great life there and contributed a lot so I'm aware of what refugees can contribute to British society. I want to give other people that chance. How long have you been doing this? Is it, you're not doing it every single week? No, no, no. Just when I can, every few months, I might come here. Um, but I also support Cam Crag in Cambridge. I go to their events and I've helped make the famous Cambridge ponchos, yes. which are useful for refugees. Yes, we were hearing about that earlier. Yeah. Great idea. Fantastic idea. That... Great ideas come out of Cambridge. They do, don't they? Yes. They really do. They say that all the time. Yes, in all sectors. Yes, yeah. yes, that's true. So you're here today in the warehouse. Mm-hmm. What's your job today? Um, today I'm sorting shoes. Mm-hmm. On other occasions I've been in the kitchens putting rice in bags or chopping vegetables. It's very vibrant here in that kitchen. 
It is. Actually, one of the things about working for this particular charity area and volunteering here is that it's also great fun for the volunteers. It is, isn't it? We were just saying that with Helena, that you get something out of it as well. Actually, it's win-win. So you would encourage other people absolutely, to help? Absolutely, absolutely. You meet really great people from all kinds of walks of life and all ages. And you're made to feel very welcome as well. Yeah, you? yes, yes. It's a lot of fun as well as hopefully helping other people. And finally, do you enjoy being out here? Um, it's quite a difficult question. I think in one sense, you meet so many amazing people when you're here, working here, with amazing energy and a fantastic drive to help each other and to help the people that we do. I, I don't know if enjoy is the right word. It's quite difficult sometimes. It's very like emotionally draining and it's frustrating to see that sometimes you can't make things better when you really want to. Mm-hmm. And even when we give out tents and sleeping bags and... The next day the police come and take everything away, it's, it's quite disheartening. But yeah. I think we've got a really good network of support, so it makes it, it makes it worth it. That concluded my trip to the Cali warehouse. As I left, I wondered what life would be like for the refugees without these volunteers looking out for them. Refugees, most of whom are there not by choice, but by circumstance. You're listening to Women Making Waves. Wow, Linda, that was obviously a very huge day out. How did you feel after? Well, apart from really, really tired, absolutely fascinated. I think you go to Cali with a certain idea in your head. Now, actually, of course, I'd been across there before, so I kind of knew what the score was. The women in particular that I spoke to that were helping, and it's not all women, you know, there are men as well that are helping out mm. there. They're all doing a fabulous job. And if it wasn't for them, I don't know quite how these guys would survive out there, to be quite honest. The French government have made it very clear they don't want them setting up a camp there. And that's why the police, the riot police, this is not the gendarme that we're talking about. It's the riot police. They're constantly coming in and taking away any signs of anyone putting down roots. So if you've got a tent, that's putting down roots, even a sleeping bag. So they're taking everything away. And then the the people, the volunteers out there are giving them stuff back just to keep them alive, really, Mm. because you can't survive without, you know, if you're living outside and they have nowhere else to live. So the refugees and the women helping them, I mean, they talk so passionately about what they're trying to do. I guess in the face of adversity, that is another huge challenge for everyone really involved. I think it's very difficult and I think it was very interesting that at the end, Ruth, when I asked her, do you enjoy being out there? She was very hesitant about it. I think for a lot of them, it's a real mixture. Yes, they are having fun, but they're also realising that they are in the middle of a crisis. Mm. But having said that, I think that they make the work that they're doing out there together, they make fun and a lot of them are quite young. Uh, a lot of them are students, the, the, the people that are staying out there permanently. And I think they are having, you know, quite a good time together, but still constantly reminded that what they are doing out there is very, very real. What's coming up on Women Making Waves? So, Susie, I believe you've been meeting another Women Making Waves. 
Yes, Dr. Tamsin Brown. The poignant moment for me is when she went to see a careers advisor at school and she was told that she should never really go into medicine. But that made her all the more determined. Fantastic. Why don't we help these children? But actually now I'm really passionate about it because I think that um, if you look at how many female innovators there are, apparently it's around the 7% mark. Now I feel like I want to really support other women to feel like they, they can take their ideas, their ever someone asked me to speak in in Australia and I thought no one is ever going to ask me to speak in Australia. We need to make better IT systems, we need to have apps in the right place. Glue is a really common condition in children under seven years old, really. It's where there's fluid or mucus that builds up behind the eardrum and it's normally in response to a cough or a cold. It could be an earache. And the glue refers to the fact that the fluid and mucus can get really thick and sticky if it sits there for a long time. And in fact, a lot of children have glue at least once. So about 80%, they think, of children under the age of 10 have had at least one episode of glue The actual shelf bone conduction headset how does it actually help children how how does it benefit them what it's trying to do is that because the glue ear sits behind the eardrum the function of the eardrum and the three little tiny bones that sit behind the eardrum is to make sound louder for a child the bone conductor uh, simply takes sound and turns it into vibration it sort of does the job of the eardrum and the middle ear bones and so it roots the vibration down the bones of the skull in fact which then reaches the cochlea and that's the inner part of the hearing that's not affected by glue ear so it just simply reroutes the sound around the problem. Now this has been a bit of a journey for you hasn't it? It's, it's what was going to be a ninth month, nine month research has taken you two years but of hard work and perseverance how, how did it all begin? Why did you want to invent a bone shelf conduction headset? What made you want to invent this? Well I'm in a really privileged position where I work as a paediatrician but I also have a special interest in audiology so half the time I'm doing paediatric clinics and half the time I'm doing audiology clinics and I was starting to see that some of the children who had glue ear had uh some of the developmental problems that we look out for, like difficulties with attention and difficulties with focusing, uh, learning, speech and language development. So I was sort of wired from my paediatric training to look for those things that I was doing in my audiology clinics. And then there was a lot of research that was coming out that was quite interesting. So I was already concerned about this group of patients because the national guidelines are that we have a watchful waiting approach, which means that we are have very conservative management and watchful waiting means you keep an eye on it. You don't do anything particularly active to help. And I was watching children where who had glue ear, whose hearing was dropping, and we were leaving them for long periods of time where they were either starting school or just at school and then they were struggling with their phonics or hearing what people were saying or their new speech and language of their new word. Even learning to focus on who to listen to, to you're learning to focus on the teacher. This journey had challenges, big challenges, trying to persuade the NHS in particular to fund this, not only fund the actual 
a headset, but actually to fund the research. Now, you have a fantastic story to tell about how you went to some of the consultants to ask if you could uh, bring this idea on. Well, I, I just I started by wondering how we could help this group of children. And it was, of course, bone conduction seems like the right approach. So I just a lot of my colleagues, some of them uh, more audiology based or and of course, to begin with, you keep saying, you know, why aren't we doing more to help just with their hearing over this period of time? It was interesting. People just thought it was not about that, that that's not what we did, that uh, it was nice, I thought, outside the box, but it wasn't. Yeah, you said that. <laughs> why, um, why, why aren't we using this? You said the bow conduction again. And then you were told, this is unbelievable. You're told, no, we don't do that. It's nice you're thinking outside the box. <laughs> And it's all about digital hearing. Well, it is. Yeah. So hearing aids for not for glue ear, but actually hearing aids are more for ch- for children who have a permanent hearing loss. Of course, it is all about uh, digital hearing aids and they're coming out quite fast and they've got new bells and whistles on them is another exciting area of audiology that I think meant that people found it difficult to refocus on a different approach. You said that, you know, communication and networking and persistence actually got you to another stage, that you were getting lots of no, no, no's. And Mm. then a friend of yours... You were at a drinks party or something, is that right? And she literally put you up to it, didn't she? she? She put you next to a very prestigious ENT specialist. Yeah, yes. I was um, standing next to this ENT surgeon. I'm sure he won't mind if I say it was Mr. Gray. I hadn't met him before and I, for want of something to say, said, there are so many children and they can't hear very well and why don't we help them with bone conduction hearing aids? Why don't we have them? And he thought about it for about 20 seconds and said, right, okay, what's your name? This is someone I'm going to introduce you to. I'd like you to write a proposal. I said, right, yes, that's no problem, and went home, and I thought it sounded quite exciting, and I had to Google how to write a proposal, and then when I wrote it, I thought, oh, everyone's going to say, what are you talking about? But then they all went, oh, very sagely, why don't you carry on then, and try and get some funding. Then, many funding applications later, (laughs) I got the first few, I didn't write them very well, I learnt very fast on the job, having had no particular research training in how to write these things, but um, eventually nailed it and got some funding and started to try out um, a sort of cheaper type of bone conduction hearing aid on uh, children with glue There was some delay though in research because of a lengthy ethical approval process what would be most ethical about (laughs) trying to get children to hear patients has to go through this ethical approval system and it is hard it's well known that it is a really lengthy process i worry that it's a bit of a rate limiting step for research sometimes yes it took me six months and then the research itself took me a couple of years i was hoping it would take nine months as you said (laughs) you have a family you are you have a job as well as being an inventor. Did it ever occur to you as a paediatrician and a community paediatrician that, that you would be an inventor? It honestly never, ever occurred to me. But actually now I'm really passionate about it because I think that um, if you look at how many female innovators there are, apparently it's around the 7% mark. If you look at how many women are in the NHS, for example, it's 77%. And I think in my particular um, NHS trust, CCS, um, it's probably more like 90%. So 
now I feel like I want to really support other women to feel like they they can take their ideas though and the thing is is when you're working in within a particular specialty you can see how and we're at the point now where the NHS is collapsing a little bit and the only way that we're going to make it better is that we need to innovate how can we see three times as many patients in the same amount of time because the, we're not going to get any more money we're not doing well mm. with funding mm. I've, I'm feeling like it maybe is the only way that we're going to save things because we need to make better IT systems we need to have apps in the right place we need to get people to they do their shopping online they do everything else online we need to get them managing their own health online mm. and, and the headset itself your view is now that you want to, you're trying to make an app with a headset. Just tell us a little bit about the, the headset and, and you're connecting it with an app, aren't you, for children to interact? Uh, there, there were some bone conduction headsets already on the market, but they were prohibitively expensive, really, for the NHS to use on a regular basis. And so this one is a much cheaper, um, simpler, lightweight bone conduction headset that's a fraction of that cost. And the idea of it is that the headset would pair with the microphone so that the child could hear. And then you, the developmental skills that they're missing out on, so that might be speech and language is a little bit delayed. It might be that their listening skills need a bit of work. It might be that their attention or their auditory memory and their auditory processing, so how they're learning to put follow sets of instructions. We could put games and audiobooks uh, together. So we've got a Hear Glue Ear app that I've also managed to get funding for so that we can put something together that should be out later this year that's to support I hope all children with glue ear to have the right information and some way of developing some of the skills that might be affected by glue ear. Now we talked earlier about you ever thinking you were going to become an inventor (laughs) not just be in the medicine role models have you have you got a role model? I definitely I I remember um I went for my careers advice at school and they said, What do you want to do? And I said, Well I'd quite like to do sciences so I could, you know, try give it medicine a bash. The careers teacher said, My own child's very, very clever, but she didn't get in to do medicine, so <laughs> what do we think is gonna happen to you? And that was what they said at fourteen. I was determined to prove her wrong. <laughs> So in a completely reverse way, she did me a huge favour because <laughs> I worked really, really hard and I thought that maybe I wouldn't do it, but I was going to try anyway. You have invented something, you have a job, you have a family and you had to work. You were working Sundays, you made sure that you planned this. It took of course, you nine yes. months to two years to do it. You worked Sundays, you worked in the I middle had... of the evening, in the middle of the night. It's the only way to... There mm. was, I mean, the only time that the house is quiet and that you can sit for a, a, some hours to mm. work through your funding for or ethical approval forms or trying to get the uh, headset approved and safety approved and electrically approved is to do it all at midnight, really. I mean, what does work mean to you? I mean, do you think the boundaries between home and work sometimes get blurred? You're so right. You're so right about that. I've recently, so because of this research, I was asked to talk, for example, this year in um, a conference in Stockholm in Sweden. And last year, for the first time ever, someone asked me to speak in, in Australia. And I thought, no one is ever going to ask me to speak <laughs> in Australia. But then, of course, when I was in Australia, someone asked me to speak in Stockholm. So having thought that this would be my only chance to speak <laughs> abroad, and I just thought, I don't know 
how to do all of this with a family and I'm just going to have to bring them along with me. My kids do sometimes come and sit on a table and they are very, very patient at waiting and they're very good at understanding that I might be up late and they come to the conferences with me. I don't know how women go, you know, with, with children. How do, you, how do you go to a conference? Yeah. That was Susie talking to Dr Tamsin Brown. You started by saying that she hadn't taken advice mm. from her career. That, imagine yeah. the careers advisor. Now, most 14-year-olds would simply have gone, OK, yeah, no. I can't do And withered away. Now. Yes. Yeah, no, but what was so funny was I asked her for a role model and I got the opposite. It was not something I was expecting, mm-hmm. but she was very, very strong in saying that she rebelled against that advice, as you said earlier, who would do that? And she probably worked harder because she was told she couldn't do it. Yeah, and That's she great. thanked the, the careers advisor for her honesty. Well, I'm not sure it was honest. I think it was a, I don't know what it was. It was a shocker of a, a, a piece of advice to say that because her own daughter didn't get into medicine, she would advise her the same not to do the get yeah. to that I mean, too. maybe it was well meant. Maybe yeah, her I'm daughter sure. had been absolutely destroyed by the Linda, thing you're and... so diplomatic. <laughs> I would have gone for that one. <laughs> but maybe it's true. Maybe she, she'd seen her own daughter feeling awful at the end of it and thought, well, I'll spare her the same fate. Mm. Because I guess medicine's not for everyone. It's, a, it's an incredibly difficult thing to go into. But she sounded great. She did. And she sounded like she wanted to do it, even if she had gone to the careers advisor. She had her own agenda. But I love the fact that she obviously had come up with this idea. And she was really determined to go through with it. And, and, and being in the right place at the right time and networking is so important, isn't it? Well, that's interesting because I don't think, and she would admit herself, that she wasn't very confident on two things. One was networking. It was only her friend that pushed her to approach this very prestigious um, ENT specialist to talk to him. That was a great move by her friend and it really propelled her. And the second thing about her confidence was that she had no idea how to write a proposal. And she did that by going on Google. Yeah. It's the way to do it, isn't it? But she was still wrought with unconfidence, but then pushed herself and after numerous proposals, she did it. It's a real lesson, isn't it? It is. For all of us. Lesson to us all. You're listening to Women Making Waves. Businesswoman and music promoter Helen Meisner came into the studio to talk to Women Making Waves about her career. I'm proud of the artists that have come through the label. Um, I'm just a conduit, really. Oh, I never know where it's going, really. Um, I'm definitely one to take opportunities. I think when someone's secure in a relationship, there's no need to get defensive. I mean, I lost £20,000 on my first festival, but I don't fear anything, actually. Helen Meisner, you won Hertfordshire Businesswoman of the Year Award in 1991. (laughs) What was that for? I had been a recruitment consultant in my early 20s and... um, in, in order to try and help the profession be more accepted, 
there was an exam called the Certificate of Recruitment Practice. I was quite intrigued by this exam. It, it covered lots of subjects that were very interesting to do with law as well as recruitment and practice. I got top marks in the country. This then meant that the Institute um, used me as their poster girl for the exam. And then I got asked if I could help train people's staff. I found a niche by mistake. <laughs> Luckily, the Training Enterprise Council in Hertfordshire decided to start the awards that year. I think they were a bit low on female entries. And uh, Oh, don't put yourself down, Helen. <laughs> Absolutely not. Um, yeah, so it was um, a great, uh, great propelling action for me. You have founded the Folk Stock Festival. And it's a number of things. It's a foundation and it's a festival and a record label. You're proud of yourself. <laughs> I'm proud of the artists that have come through the label. Um, I'm just a conduit, really. Very I modest. I ha- no, I'm not. I haven't got uh, the musical talent I, I thought I had. Um, years and years ago, I, I re- sang on a, a recording and the record label rang up. And uh, it was my husband at the time who had organised for me to sing on this recording. And the label rang up and said, is Steve there? No, sorry. Can I help? Is that... Helen, yes. Did you sing on the recording? Yes. He said, tell your husband to get someone else and put the phone down. It probably saved me waiting an awful lot of time, (laughs) to be fair. I now put my energy into helping other people. Well, we all need knocks in our lives, and maybe sometimes that gives us the push to do something even more positive, doesn't it? It was years and years later that I started the other thing, but it took me a while to recover. Tell us a little bit about the Folk Stock Festival. You started off in 2013 with that? Yes, what happened was um, in 2010 I had breast cancer and I finished my treatment in 2011 and the chemo and the radio and the operations and there's a sort of um, coming out of treatment party. My daughter and her band put on a little gig for us and one of the songs they sang I hadn't heard before. I said, oh, where's that song from? I said, we wrote it this afternoon. I thought, well, they're really good. If they've got any more songs, I'll help promote them. So I started doing that and that is really how I got back into music you know a few years later from my experience in the early or the late 90s probably it was my my rejection so the band that Lauren was in was called The Folk and they were doing folkish covers and then their own originals I had great fun trying to get them radio play and interviews and stuff and I found that it really suited me. I could do it when I wanted. I was learning how to do Facebook and Twitter at the time. And but that's interesting because world. you're learning, aren't you, on the way, as well as actually producing this festival. Yeah, well, I was 44 you're learning the whole time. at the time that, yeah. I, that this was happening. I was very dismissive of Facebook and Twitter at the time. Now my whole life rolls around it, just to everyone's dismay around me. But no, it's, it's, it's amazing to start something from scratch. But you can do that at any age. Mm. I think what you've got to do is have an interest in something. Absolutely. There's nothing stopping anyone doing anything, actually. There appears to be a large number of female artists playing on the Folkstock Festival. Is this deliberate? Um, it's not deliberate. It's just that the acts that applied and the ones that I like, the best ones happen to be female. <laughs> Um, I think there's so much variety within the within females like there are within the males because I set up the label in 2013 to help champion female artists initially and then Lauren, my daughter, was the producer. I think female artists have approached us more than male artists and therefore the ones that want to play at my events generally are women because they, they associate me with that, I think. But you told me earlier that there is a man 
There is a man on your list, and his name is Joe Rose. Tell us a bit about him, because that's extraordinary. It gives us hope, doesn't it? Well, the thing about Joe Rose is uh, he's actually an accountant from Royston. He turned 60 in March, and this is his stage name, and this is the first time he's performed in public. I like to try and do that for people, to try and give them their first taste of something new, which is what the foundation was set up to do. In 2013, I decided I would put on an event and help coach people to perform at it. That was the original idea. So I had like six months between setting up the foundation and putting on the festival. But in the end, it was 77 acts across four stages and a lot of acts that I hadn't actually helped at all. But it just, you know, like a, a rolling stone, it gathered. A lot of people told me that that was their first festival in 2013 and that they still tell me that now. And so Joe Rose, well, I, I discovered Joe Rose. It's a, a great voice. name, actually. I like the name. <laughs> He's got tattoos all over his body and roses on his arm and it's his mother's maiden name as well. So I, I just thought I'd make it a fun stage name, really, that you can visually see the roses on him. It's very inked, you could say. Yes, he's, he's got a lovely velvety voice. And in fact, another of the acts, Marina Florence from Norwich, she heard him perform at a private event and she asked if we'd like a bit of help with original material that, and she could accompany him as well. And she's a brilliant songwriter. Mm. Anthony Head performed one of her songs on BBC TV a few years back when she won a competition which a number of the Radio 2 presenters judged so Marina Florence, a, song, a songwriter, and she's funded by Arts Council England, mm. has been. So she's performing with him to start the event on the 8th, uh, Saturday the 8th. So that's going to be quite a fun five or six songs from Joe Rose. Yes, yeah, just a, you know, one extreme to the other. <laughs> do the artists find you or do you find them? Is that something that you spend a lot of time? I mean, obviously, word of mouth and reputation plays a big part in this and you must have achieved that so far. I think initially anyone putting on a festival is bombarded with artists and so when I started in this process in 2013, no one knew who I was and I didn't know who anyone was, but I, I listened to loads and loads of artists. Since then, it's it's just been people contacting me on a quite regular basis asking if I've got anything that they could get involved in, mm. which is nice. And, and challenges, do you find doing this that you get deeper and deeper into it and you where is this going? Or do you think, actually, I'm in charge here. I know exactly where it's all going. Oh, I never know where it's going, really. Um, I'm definitely one to take opportunities. My remit was to help artists who wouldn't be picked up by the large labels because particularly independent singer-songwriters on a folkish vein are not generally seen as that commercially viable. There's not really much money to be made. However, you can get some amazing singer-songwriters that can perform live and they can get a decent amount of money performing live if they get a reputation. Mm. Have you always been very confident? I think it comes from my parents, actually. They're both self-starters who've done a number of careers and it never occurred to me that you can't. It's just the environment that I've been brought up in. It's a very good point, actually. Your daughter, Lauren Deacon Davis, she is on the book. She's also a producer, so she works with you. How is that relationship? Has that changed over the, the time that you've been working together? It's quite an interesting question. It's lucky because we seem to get on very well. I think when someone's secure in a relationship, there's no need to get defensive. I say anything way, I've been thinking about it, and I can describe it really is that if I say that's not quite right or that's brilliant, she knows I mean it either way. So we have our strengths. And the thing is, I don't take offence when she rips my poster to shreds. It, it works. Biggest fears, Helen, what has been 
the biggest fear? What have you learnt that you've realised that you can't do the same again? Or maybe things have not gone wrong, Helen? I don't know about not gone wrong. I, mean, I lost £20,000 on my first festival, but I don't fear anything, actually. It's well, things... definitely right for women making waves. <laughs> <laughs> well, if things go a certain way, then you would analyse what's happened and it depends how you feel about it. I mean, obviously, I have an interesting history in terms of how other people might view failure. I am now divorced from my fourth marriage. I'd like to talk about that because it's a taboo subject sometimes when they say divorce, married, whatever. Mm. And and I think it's something that it's part of our life, isn't it? That you, you go through one relationship, boyfriend, and then, of course, it's very dramatic when you have divorce. But I always think it's it's good to talk about these things. You had a good relationship at the time. Things didn't work out and you move on. That is life, is it not? Also, divorce doesn't have to be traumatic. Exactly. Yeah. For you then, fourth marriage... Can we say that it's no longer a fourth marriage now? You're celebrating the freedom again. And I know it's been talked about in various national newspapers, and I don't want to go into detail, but does that have an effect on your life and where you move from and how you... Does that help or hinder sometimes? I don't think it hinders. It might make someone have to be very brave to want to go out with me, Um, but there seems to be no shortage of brave people. (laughs) for them and I'm probably a bit of an optimist and I would say also a hopeless romantic which which means I, I wouldn't rule out number five you know and Elizabeth Taylor obviously had eight and I'd, I haven't decided if I'd marry twice yet but um, who knows well I like it because in the national newspaper it said that your first husband is godfather yeah. to my daughter to your daughter yeah yeah so we got involved very young well I was very young and started a relationship at a level that perhaps wasn't suitable for a marriage and we were we were good friends but we were able to break up amicably. Would you say that you are a serial entrepreneur? <laughs> I say I'm a serial wife. <laughs> <laughs> um, yes, I think serial entrepreneur. Yes, I think so, because once you've done something and it's gone a certain way, you may feel you've taken it as far as it can for now. And, it, and the thing is, there's so many things in life to do, as well as the corporate area of training and then getting involved in music and promotion. The, the thing is that life is so fascinating. I'm a bit of um, a portfolio career in a way. I, I dip into one and another in the same week. So I'm yeah. still doing training here and there, still doing consultancy for businesses. It's just about having variety, I think. The future of the festival, what, what do you think is going to happen there? Well, initially, after the first one in 2013, I thought it'd be a good idea to help more people by putting on uh, stages at other people's festivals which is what I did with the Stand and Calling and Wilkstock and Ballstock and that's a version of what I'm doing on the 8th of September is is in Baldock High Street it's at the White Line with the future if people ask me to put on events um, I'll certainly look at them and I do look at them and putting on acts and suggestions for their events certainly do that still as well on a regular basis but I'm, I'm also going to go more back into my spiritual area setting up with a friend John Frog I'm setting up something called Down to Earth Retreats, which will be a chance for people who are leading busy lives to have a break. And I will be covering, funnily enough, the relationship and external referencing part of our lives. And he will be covering meditation and the inner aspects of our lives. Helen Meisner, it's absolutely lovely to have you here for Women Making Waves and for our um, show today. Very honoured to be invited. Thank you so much. That was Susie Thorpe speaking to Helen Meisner. That was great, Susie. Love that interview. It was really enjoyable talking to her. She is a very confident woman. 
And of course, she's very, very busy at the moment, isn't she? Because uh, the Folkstock Festival that she runs is coming up soon. Yeah, it's coming on the 8th of September at the White Lion in Bulldog. You need to watch out for that. And also, Helen Meisen's going to be a judge, is she not, Linda? You're a little bit attached yes, to this award. <laughs> the NMG Awards, which are uh, Tim Willett's New Music Generator they are great and they're happening this year in the apex at Bury St Edmunds the night before Helen's Folkstock Festival actually on the 7th of September. Helen has been a judge at those awards for the past six years and very proud she is of that. She was mentioning to me that she's really, really flattered and proud to be involved in those awards mm. year after year. Loves it. You can follow Women Making Waves on Twitter and Facebook at WomenMW and on Instagram, Women Making Waves Radio. Women Making Waves is a Jibber Jabber production.